Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. We are going to be starting now our last book of Romans, our last one in the series. It's been about three months. We we will complete teaching every single verse tonight. If you're following along, we are using the new King, King James version. So if you want to know what are you reading out of, it's new King James. You can follow along with me. And I highly encourage you, make it fun. Make it exciting. Follow along. Get your Bible out. Get your highlighter out. Get your kid's Bible out. Get your family doing this with you. It's fun to follow along as I help you explain the Bible. And my goal really, guys, in these, we did every verse in Acts. We taught through every verse in Revelation, which you haven't seen those. They're on the channel and playlist called the book of Revelation and the book of Acts. Now the book of Romans. I want to get you excited about the word of God. I want to get you passionate about reading the word of God. I want you to step out of these broadcasts and have an unquenchable thirst for the word of God, insatiable desire for the word of God to get in your Bible and to read it. How many of you know, without the Bible, there will be no revival. We need the word of God. We need to eat the word of God. We can't live by bread alone, but everywhere that proceeds out of the mouth of God, we need God's word in our lives. We need it. So the book of Romans written by Paul to the believers in Rome, incredible book, because as you guys know, if you're not, if you're new, I'll I'll give it to you here. It explains every Christian doctrine in one book. So the book of Romans, you need to go back and watch this entire series because it is incredible. All the doctrines that Paul goes over in the book of Romans, really, it does present the entire counsel of God in one book. Again, my life goal is to make you passionate and to make people passionate about the Bible. I'm excited about the Bible. People say, why do you shout and talk so fast? Because I'm excited. It's the same reason why when you get a new job or you get a new car, new this, you're yelling, excited, talking fast about it. Anything you're excited about, this is how it comes out. So I'm excited about the Bible. If you don't like loud or fast talking, this is probably not the broadcast for you. There's plenty of other guys out there that talk slow and and quiet, and that's not throwing shade or being rude. I just am very excited about the word of God. Let's go through a recap here. We did last week, chapter 13 and 14, chapter 13. It's a sin for believers to not submit to governing authorities because God has established the need and the rule of authority. God is the one that established government. I know you don't believe this. All rule of authority, whether it's government, law enforcement, politicians, pastors, teachers, governing rulers are appointed by God. The Bible makes this explicitly clear. And Paul goes so far to say... When you disobey them, you're disobeying God. So whether you like your authorities or not, they're there to establish law and rule. Now, of course, if authority causes you to go against God's word, God's authority is higher. We already know this. Paul makes this very clear. If God, if someone's telling you to do something contrary of what God says to do, then you don't obey that authority. But if someone has a law or rule and they are our authority, then we are to obey them. That's what Paul said, whether you like it or not. Paul goes on to say, fear of authority is unnecessary. If you do what is right, the authority will do right by you. And if the authority doesn't do right by you, God will remain with us even when we're tested. Remember in Rome, they were being persecuted for the gospel. And here Paul comes and says, you need to love authority. You need to obey authority. And the question would be, how could I submit to authority that is anti-God? And Paul says, God will vindicate you. God will bring vengeance. Your job is to submit. God is the author of all authority. And oftentimes God will use authority to test us and to sift us as well. Then Paul says, we owe the world the good news. We're indebted to the people around us. Every single one of you listening right now, you owe the good news to your friends. You owe the good news to your family. We are indebted to the world. We owe them the good news. And then he closes with, now is the time to wake up. If you're listening to this broadcast, this is the time to wake up. You don't have the luxury to sleep in in the hour that we're living in. We are living in the last days as Paul described. This is the final moments of human history. The instruction is this. Paul says this. Do this knowing the time is short. The day is far spent. The night the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Christ is coming back. So what should we do? Here's what you need to do. You want to know? Take off the works of darkness. Stop providing your flesh with provision and put on the armor of light. In other words, it's time to go to battle. It's time to cast off the areas of compromise, complacency, and darkness, and it's time to go to war. We are in a real battle, and we are living in the last days. And if it's not the last days chronologically, it's your last days, because the end of this broadcast isn't promised to you. You can die in the middle of this broadcast, and this might be the last message you ever hear. Chapter 14, acting as a judge of someone else in, in a disputable matter, 
is contrary to the word of God. If there's an area that's disputable, we're not talking about blatant sin. We are not to judge others. That's God's job. If there's something that you're like, well, I don't know if we should eat meat. Well, I think we should eat meat. And it's it's a disputable matter that's not clear in the word of God. We are not to judge others on that. Now we are to judge. Let me be very clear. We are to judge others on matters like adultery, like lust, like fornication. Those are not disputable. Those are wrong. So that's why Paul says, if someone's in sexual sin, we judge them if they're in the church. But disputable matters, we don't judge those. We don't criticize them. We don't that those that don't don't agree with us. The strong, the Bible says, Paul says, should not be a stumbling block to the weak. If you're strong in your faith, you should not practice your freedom at the expense of somebody else's weaknesses. So again, if you're strong, Paul says, do it at home. Don't do it around other weak believers. And this was pertaining to eating meat. This was pertaining to certain diets, uh, whether you celebrate the Sabbath or not. Paul said, don't let anyone look down at you because you don't celebrate the Sabbath. You're not required any longer to celebrate this. So if you don't and others try to look down at you, that's where the dispute is. That's the disputable matters he's talking about. Again, if it makes you mad, go read Romans 14 and take it up with God. If you're not convinced by something and it's not sin to you, but if you are convicted or convinced, it's, it is sin to you. So if I'm convicted about, let's just example, eating meat. If I feel like, man, it's wrong to eat meat, it's a sin for me, and I eat meat, I'm actually sinning, even though it's not a sin to eat meat. If I feel like eating meat is okay, and I'm not convicted, and I eat it, I'm fine. And that goes for other disputable matters. But let me make this clear. If the Word of God says something is sin, it doesn't matter if you think it's sin or not, it's labeled sin. When we're talking about sin being different for other people, and I have a whole video on this on the channel, we're talking about disputable matters. We're talking about matters that are not clear in Scripture. Like I said, if you're like, well, I don't feel convicted to fornicate, it doesn't matter because it's wrong regardless. If you're like, well, I don't feel convicted about committing adultery, it doesn't matter. It's sin regardless because the word of God says it. These are only on disputable matters. Now we are going into, again, it won't be a long for chapters 15 and 16, but we will do communion and we will pray and we will do probably Q&A at the end to just take some of the time. But we are going into Romans chapter 15. Oh man, we're at the end. It feels sad. We're at the last two chapters here. Romans 15, one through two. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. The NLT says it like this. We who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and we should be building them up in the Lord. So Paul uses we to include himself in one who is strong in the faith. Paul says, I'm strong in the faith and I want to be responsible or I am responsible for resolving the differences between them that are weaker Christians. I'm the one as the strong Christian that should stand up and resolve the issues that are disputable and to help other believers be strong and to grow in their faith. Now, Paul is not saying be a people pleaser, but what he is saying is be considerate of those that are not as strong as you. Not everyone is as strong as you. So rather than flaunting your freedom to do certain things, be considerate and don't just please yourself. He goes on to say, help them and build them up in the Lord. This is your job. If you are a strong Christian, your job and your calling is to help others do what is right. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are we helping other Christians do what is right? Or are we helping other Christians do what is popular? Our job is to train others in righteousness. Our job is to train others in doing the right thing. And and how can you teach someone to do the right thing when you're not doing the right thing? You know, the reason why some of you don't witness is because you're not living a pure life. The reason why some of you don't share your faith is because you're not even walking in holiness yourself. So how are you going to teach somebody how to live a consecrated life if you're not living a consecrated life? Many people don't share their faith because they're in shame because they don't live this thing out for real. They live a halfway watered down version of Christianity. So when you walk the narrow road, you have the authority and the power to preach and to help others walk that road. We're not hypocrites. When I come and say, hey guys, we shouldn't do this or go there or watch this. I'm not out doing what I'm telling you not to do because by not doing it, I have the authority to help you live a clean life and to live a pure life. So if you're ashamed of sharing your faith, maybe it's your lifestyle and you feel like a hypocrite. So rather than say, well, I'm just not going to share, change your lifestyle. Make your life clean and pure so that you can have boldness to share your faith and not feel like every time you share your faith, you're a hypocrite. It feels bad to share your faith and feel like a hypocrite the entire time. So to solve that, stop being a hypocrite. That's how you solve it. You stop being a hypocrite. Live it out for real so when you share your faith, you don't feel like a hypocrite. Okay, so we're called to help others do the right thing. 
And also we're called to take Christians that are new or young in the faith, teach them what is right and teach them what is wrong according to the word of God. Remember, the Bible says that the word of God points out areas of our life that are not right, shows us what is wrong and teaches us what to do what is right. So in the word of God is instructions for right living. Now, if you're confused about how to live a pure life, it might be because you don't know the word of God. It might be because you don't read the Bible because the Bible literally tells us what's wrong in our lives. We read it and go, I'm wrong. Now, when I read the Bible and see something that I don't like, or it tells me something that I don't like to do, I have to conclude I'm wrong and the Bible's right. If the Bible says don't fornicate and I think it's okay to fornicate, I'm wrong, not the Bible. So every time you read the word of God, it tells us what's wrong in our lives. It literally points out what's wrong in our lives. And then it teaches us to do what is right. That's what the word of God does. That's what preaching is supposed to do. Sadly, we have so many watered down, lukewarm, jellyfish, carnal preachers that tell us what we want to hear, that massage our ears, that itch our ears, the Bible says, literally means that they rub your ears and massage them. And there's a lot of people in this generation that want a massage and not a message. I don't want a massage. I don't want you to massage my ears. I want a message from God that's going to bring me out of my compromised lifestyle. It's going to bring me out of sin and that's going to help me walk like Christ. I want to hear convicting preaching. I'm telling you tomorrow, the message I'm releasing tomorrow will be probably one of the most convicting messages you've ever heard. That's the messages I want to hear. I want to walk away broken saying, Lord, change me. I want to be more like you. What messages I can't stand are when preachers preach messages that make me feel better about my sin. And that's what popular Christianity does is it lets you feel better about your carnal, lukewarm lifestyle rather than calling you out of sin. It actually uses the Bible to call you into sin. Oh, come on. Help me preach tonight, Holy Spirit. We're called to help. Romans 15, 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who repro- of who reproached you fell on me. So the phrase for even Christ reveals that Christ was the only one that had the right to please himself. Christ had the right to please himself, yet he didn't. And if, and if Christ did please himself, he would have been pure. He would have been right in his, in his motives. But instead, he chose to look out for other people, people who were broken, people were, who were hurting, people who were fallen. Look how many times Christ spent hours praying for people, spent hours ministering to people, spent hours humbling himself and reaching those that were broken because he wasn't here to please himself. Although he could have, He wasn't here to please himself. So as Christians, we are not on this earth to please ourselves. We are on this earth to minister to others, to bring the gospel to other people. As a Christ follower, it is our job to not please ourselves, but to look out for the needs of those around us. Jesus preached this in Matthew 16, 24. If anyone desires to come after me, here's the prerequisite. Are you ready? Here's Jesus. Who wants to come after me? Okay, here's what you have to do. This is the instructions. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the prerequisite to being a Christian. Oh brother, just pray a prayer. Invite Jesus in your heart and live however you want. That's not what Jesus taught. Let me make this explicitly clear. Jesus did not teach the sinner's prayer. Jesus never one time said, invite me into your heart so I could build a treehouse and you can live however you want. That's not the gospel. That's the Western lukewarm watered down commercial gospel. The gospel Jesus pro- preached was this. You want to follow me? deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. This is about self-denial. This is about you not no longer being in love with you, but being in love with reaching people for the glory of God and being selfless, not selfish. There's a narcissistic spirit in the church that says, what's in it for me? And I'm not looking at what's in it for me. I'm looking at what can I do for God? And I need to deny myself, deny my own desires. This is what Jesus said, if you want to follow him in Matthew 16, 24. So we can't make up a new gospel and say, well, you know, he didn't really mean it. Don't tell Jesus what he meant. Okay. Preachers need to stop telling Jesus what he, well, he didn't really mean to go cast out demons. You know, he was speaking. No, that's literally what he meant. Well, he didn't really mean to heal the sick. That was just for then. No, that's literally what he said and what he meant. Well, I preached one time and a preacher got up after me and said, well, Jesus didn't really mean give everything. Isaiah said to give everything. He didn't really mean that. Yes, he did. He means what he means. He said what he said. And it's in a book and it's in red. And so you don't need to negotiate or argue. You just need to do it. And this is what you need to do. Deny yourself. My flesh 
wants to go do this. I'm denying you. You're not doing that. I know you want to, but you're not doing that. My flesh doesn't want to evangelize. But guess what, flesh? You don't get to win. My flesh wants to watch this, do this, go there, say that, listen to that. But I deny myself. I deny myself. I'm not going to do what my flesh... Somebody needs to tell their flesh to shut up. Instead of telling the Holy Ghost to stop talking, you need to tell the flesh to stop talking. Because every time you're out and the Holy Ghost speaks to you, you go, I don't really know about that Holy Spirit. And you deny the Holy Spirit. And instead of denying your flesh... We deny the Holy Spirit and obey our flesh, but God is saying today to deny your flesh and to say yes to the Holy Spirit. Some of you are so used to following your flesh, you don't even know how to be a Christian because your entire life is about you. Jesus goes, deny you, take up your cross and follow after me. So if you live to only please yourself, you're going to live an empty and void life. But if you want to live a life of pure spiritual riches, live your life helping other people. Alexander Pagani, I love you, bro. I appreciate you. I see you in the chat there. Being selfish. Listen to this. Woo! This is good. Being selfish leaves no room for feeding the poor, no room for laying hands on the sick, no room for casting out demons, no room for ministering to the lost. All these things take sacrifice, and when you're self-centered, you'll never take time to help others. Helping others is extremely time-consuming, but pleasing what doing what pleases you is not God's way. This is the first time Paul uses Christ as an example, so you know it's important. So understand, friend, that the way of God is not to please yourself, and for some of you, God can't use you. Let's just be honest. God can't use you, because there's no room for him to use you. You're like the, the hotel, the inn, that when Jesus came was full. Sorry, you can't be born here. We're full. So many of you are so full of yourself. God can't use you. you. God can't use you to lay hands on the sick. God can't use you. I'm being literal here. God can't use you to drive out demons because you're selfish and your life is, your entire schedule is about pleasing you. Not being a God pleaser, but being a man pleaser. And God says, man, I want to use you, but I can't. That's why you don't minister. That's why you don't evangelize. That's why you don't even take time to pray. That's why you don't take time to read your Bible because you're too busy with everything that you want to do and not what God wants to do. God says, let me live through you for once and stop being so selfish and self-centered and doing what only you want to do. Jesus went through incredible lengths. This is why Paul quotes Psalm 69 Nine, for even Christ did not please himself. He went through incredible lengths, uh, lengths despite insulting, rejection, beatings, death on the cross. Jesus remained focused on obeying his father and acting for our good. And we need to do the same. Make it your goal. Somebody write this in the chat. Make it your goal to give the world a daily glimpse of Jesus. Come on, somebody. These are bombs right here. Make it your goal. Every day, I'm going to give somebody a glimpse of Jesus, whether I pray for them, whether I minister to them, whether I prophesy over them, whether I encourage them, whether I'm kind to them. I don't care if you open up the door for somebody, give them a glimpse of how Jesus was because Jesus was not selfish like you. Jesus was not bitter like you. Jesus did not have a bad attitude like you. Jesus was not lazy like you. Jesus was not in compromise like you. Jesus lived a holy life to model what we can do. He lived a life of miracles to model for us what we can do, a life of deliverance to model. There's a reason why everywhere he went, he laid hands on the sick and cast out demons. This is the Christian life and make it, make it your life's goal to give people a glimpse of Jesus in your everyday life. Whether it's your family, your kids, your wife. This is what Matthew Henry said. The self-denial of our Lord Jesus is the best argument against selfishness of Christians. Christ pleased not himself. He did not consult his own worldly credit, ease, safety, nor pleasure. This is what Matthew Henry says. He emptied himself and made himself of no reputation and all this for our sakes to set an example for us. His whole life was a self-denying, self-displeasing life. Woo! Somebody dropped, I wish I could drop the mic, but it's attached to my desk. His entire life was a self, selfless life where he was self-displeasing. He didn't look to please himself, and he could have. He could have, and he would have been right in doing that, but he decided not to. Romans 15, 4. For whatever things were written before, this is so good, guys. Do not click off this video. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So Paul says, listen, things written in scripture were written so that we can learn not only from the victories, but also the mistakes. If you ever wonder why scripture contains so many of the mistakes of God's chosen people, one major reason is to help us avoid those mistakes. 
the danger of religious teachers and teachings is they say, well, that doesn't apply to us. Oh, praying for the sick, that was just for them. Oh, casting out demons, that was just for them. Oh, spiritual gifts, that was just for them. Oh, surrendering everything, that doesn't apply. What do you mean? The Bible says this is all for our learning. These things are written for us. They're not just, that was only for the people in the Matthew's day. That was only for the people in that day. Stop saying that because you're lazy. That's not just for them. It's for learning so that we can learn through the patience and the comfort of scriptures. We might have hope now and hope to come. This is a, there's guys, we have hope when we look to scriptures that there is a real man coming back to this earth. That brings me hope. When I look at the darkness and depravity of humanity, I'm reminded one day Christ is coming back to make all wrong things right. I long to hear the angels say, the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our God. Paul is saying scripture is timeless and meant for every generation to learn from. Come on, I'm preaching strong tonight. This is for every single one of us. So all the religious people that tell you that was just for them, they say that about everything. They'll literally say that about tonight. Well, Romans was written to the people in Rome. It's not for you. It's not for your benefit. Wrong, 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 wrong. Stop listening to preachers that say that was just for them. That was just for them because Romans 15.4 destroys their argument. We're written before. This is what Paul, for whatever things were written before, were written for our learning. That's what they're for so that we can learn. So I'm not going to read scripture and say, oh, that's just not for me. And you know what? Here's the truth. I feel bold tonight. You only say that area in areas of the Bible you don't want to truly live. Let's just be honest. Preachers that say that, they don't want to lay hands on the sick. They don't want to cast out devils. They don't want to pray. They don't want to live holy. They don't want to walk a consecrated, circumspect, uh, narrow road life. So they say, oh, the narrow road, that wasn't for us. That was just for the early disciples before salvation. Oh, deliverance, that was for, you know, before the cross. But after the cross, well, then explain Acts 16. Explain Acts chapter 8. Explain Acts chapter 19. Explain all through the book of Acts. Well, healing wasn't, you know, that towards the end of Acts, it died out. In the last chapter, a whole island gets healed. What are you talking about? Guys, why are we changing the Bible to fit our life instead of changing our life to fit the Bible? Why are we making up these things of that's not for today, just areas that we don't want to do? I told one preacher, because he said, oh, well, that doesn't apply deliverance. And I was like, okay, so what you just pick and choose what applies of Jesus said. So when Jesus said, go cast out demons, that doesn't apply. But when Jesus said, walk the narrow road, that applies. I mean, who's sitting there going, this applies and this doesn't apply. This is what these teachers do. I'm going to say this. I literally believe everything Jesus said to do applies for today. Everything. I believe. And they'll say, well, do you believe in walking on water? Yeah. If Jesus lets me, I would love to walk on water. Oh, you, you don't believe in raising the dead. Oh, absolutely. I believe in raising the dead. I pray for the dead. I'll keep praying for the dead. I literally believe every single thing that Jesus said to do. I actually believe that we can do it. And I actually believe we can learn from it. And I believe not just a part. So I, I'm scared of these teachers. I'm scared for you guys that you listen to these guys are, oh, well, this is for uh, today. And this isn't for today. Who, who died and made you God? I mean, is God not on his throne? You're God. Now you get to choose what's for today and what's for not. It's, it's scary. It's disgusting. And it's not biblical. All scripture written before was for learning. And I could go all night on this. I won't. Romans 15, five through six. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you, you may be with one mind and one mouth, glorify God and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer was that you would be unified. This was also Jesus's prayer in John 17. Have you ever wondered, like, I've always thought like, what was Jesus praying? I mean, this is the son of God, God in the flesh. What was he praying? We know what he was praying because look at what John, John 17, Jesus goes on and says, father, make them one as you and I are one. The prayer of Jesus. How many know Jesus gets his prayers answered? Like that's off the top here. And Jesus's prayer was father. I so badly want you to make them my disciples, the church one unified together as you and I are one. You think of the unity the father and the son had and Jesus's desire is that me and you would be just as unified as him and the father was. So unity is a major desire that God has for his church. The devil wants to divide us, but Jesus continues to pray. Even now, father, make us one. Now it doesn't mean we agree on everything, but it means we can come together with our different gifts, different visions and work together like a mighty orchestra, making a beautiful song before God. We work in harmony together. We don't have to always agree on everything, 
but we need to be unified. We have to stop with this division of, I don't know about this. I don't know about that. The church is so divided. Everybody is so quick to go against somebody else for whatever they think. You have all these channels that are the most views on YouTube. Well, not really, but some of them are. They get all these views that they just heresy hunt. Well, this person's not God. Everybody's a false prophet to these guys, right? He's a false prophet because he believes in miracles. He's a false prophet because he believes in deliverance. He's a false prophet because he believes in whatever. They, they label everybody but them a false prophet and they sow discord in the church. The Bible says it's an abomination to those that sow discord among the brethren. Be careful when you follow people that have more videos about disunity than they do about unity. Amen to that. Good word, brother Isaiah. Romans 15 Chapter 15, verse 7, Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. When Paul is saying, is the same way he's saying, basically, Christ forgave you, so you forgive others. In the same way Christ healed you, help heal others. In the same way Christ showed you unconditional love, bring unconditional love to others. In the same way Christ received you, receive others. So freely you've been given, freely you give. The way Christ has treated you, now you should treat those people. That's what he's saying. Romans 15, 9 through 12. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. For this I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, loud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles and him the Gentiles shall have hope. So having explained Christ's focus on the Jews, Paul is quickly to point out that God always had the Gentiles in mind. God desiring to save the Gentiles was not a, is not a new principle. He had this in mind from even the Old Testament. And he proves the point by quoting four Old Testament passages that present the Gentiles as giving praise to the God that saved them. These Old Testament passages are prophetic passages about the day the Gentiles would praise and serve the Lord. Keep in mind, the Gentile church was in its early stages. It started at Pentecost and the book of Romans was written 22 years after Pentecost. So these with Christ, two very different worlds were brought together. This is what we've been talking about throughout all of Romans, right? The Gentiles, the Jews, this argument, this debating, the book of Acts, we see this over and over again. Should they be circumcised? Shouldn't they be circumcised? Are they supposed to eat the right meat? Are they not allowed to eat meat? There's this joining of the Jewish culture with the Gentiles and then saying, hey, everybody, there's no Jew nor Gentile. Everybody can now serve God together. And Paul is navigating, working to get these differences sorted out. And it's no wonder why a majority of Paul's writings are, are to bring clarity to both groups and how they can work together. Remember, Paul said he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So it's his responsibility to bring solid theological foundation to the Gentile people. And then the text I just read, Paul quotes 2 Samuel 22, 50, Deuteronomy 32, 43, Psalms 117, 1, and Isaiah 11, 10 to prove that it was God's desire to save the Gentiles. This is Old Testament. It brings, when Paul's stating the Old Testament, he's bringing validity. He's basically saying, this is not just my opinion. Now, when I make a statement and then I give a verse to back it up, or I give a verse, then I make a statement after, like earlier when I said it's all scriptures for learning, I'm giving the verse to give validity to my statement. I'm not just making things up. We use the Bible to bring validity to statements or points that we're making. This is what Paul did. This is why you need to know the Bible. So when you make statements and someone says, well, is that in the Bible? You know where it's at and you know it's in the Bible. So Paul is saying, using the Old Testament to make the statement that God's always had the Gentiles in mind to save them. It wasn't a new principle. God desired to save the Gentiles. Now, Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may be abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Two major things we need today, Paul describes right here in Romans 15, 13. Hope and peace. We are living in a world of hopeless. In fact, there's many of you that feel hopeless tonight. You have no hope. You have no ambitions. You have no dreams. The basic way I can say this is you have nothing to look forward to. Your life feels empty. It feels like there's no destination. You're living random. And this is what the Holy Spirit can do. He can give you hope in whatever situation you're going through. Maybe it's a marriage falling apart. Maybe it's kids that are addicted to drugs. Maybe it's friendships that are broken up and you're all by yourself and you feel isolated and alone. Maybe you're navigating through a new ministry or a new church or you're in the middle of going to a different church or you're in the middle of heartbreak or a breakup or whatever, a a job that you've lost or a promotion that you were looking forward to, somebody else got. You just feel like there's no hope. But here's the beauty. God, the God of hope, fill you with joy and peace and believing. This is what we need. Not only do we need hope, because the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick, but we also need peace in all the chaos 
and the, the times where you feel like life is meaningless, God will bring you peace. I want to tell you tonight that God can fill you with hope and peace right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you need hope and peace, why don't you just type one in the chat right now? Because I believe right now by the power of the Holy Spirit in the middle of this teaching, the power of the Holy Spirit can come into wherever you are, bring you hope, bring you joy, bring you peace, bring you rest, and empower you that you can abound in the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not natural. It's not man's power. It's not man's strength. We are talking about a moving of the Holy Spirit, a supernatural power, God himself, right now in this moment, bringing you peace, bringing you joy, bringing you hope, bringing you life, that the God that we serve is able exceedingly abundantly to do more exceedingly above what we could ever ask, imagine, or think. And I pray tonight that the God of peace, the God of hope, the God of love will pour out so that your life doesn't feel so chaotic and meaningless and broken. Romans 15, 14 through 16. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, full, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul's saying this, yes, I've been bold and a lot that I've written to you. And by the way, if you didn't think Paul was bold, you would say, Isaiah, you're a little bit too bold sometimes. The apostle Paul was extremely bold. And he's saying I'm bold because it's part of my calling as God's minister to the Gentiles. Me being bold, confrontational, or saying something maybe that you don't really like. By the way, a prerequisite to preaching is not preach what people like, it's preach what people need. That's the goal. So our goal is not to preach what you want to hear, it's preach what you need to hear. He's saying, I'm doing that because this was my calling. God was calling me to be bold. I'm not, and I'm not doing it in my own strength or my own effort because God is, who is a loving father often brings correction. Paul is doing it by the grace of God. He didn't earn the position. He didn't work it. He didn't work uh, for it. He worked because of it. I right now, just think about this. Okay. I was minding my own business, trying to get hired as a deputy sheriff and atheist in my mind, which I still don't believe atheists exist, but I thought I was an atheist and God came to me, encountered me and said, go preach a message of awakening and wake up my church. Okay. So I don't have a desire. And I know this sounds bad to say, but I've said this before. I don't have a desire to preach. I didn't, I didn't go like, man, I really want to be a preacher. Let me go through Bible college. I didn't want to, I was minding my own business. And God came to me and said, go preach to my people. This is what the prophet Amos, Amos was out minding his own business and God came to him and said, go preach and wake my people up. And so I, I want to remind you guys, some of you say, well, Isaiah, don't you, don't you get tempted with being prideful? And in my mind, I'm like, what would I be prideful of? I don't even want to do what I'm doing. I didn't ask for a platform. I didn't ask for followers on social media. I didn't, I've never once in 12 years of preaching asked to preach anywhere. I've never tried to get a microphone. I've never wanted, friend, if you know me, I would rather stay in the sound booth and no one even talk to me and be a complete introvert. That's what Isaiah wants to do. Isaiah doesn't want to be live preaching. Like that's not what Isaiah wants, but God called me. God gave me grace and God appointed me to say some bold things by his grace. I didn't earn this position. I didn't strive. I didn't do anything to get where I'm at other than the grace of God in my life saying, Isaiah, this is my plan and my calling. So honestly, like I can't even try to be prideful about this because I don't even want this. I didn't ask if God said, which he won't because it would be against his nature. But if he says, Isaiah, don't preach ever again, friend, I'd be doing backflips. I'd be excited. I'd be like, thank you, Lord. I'm only doing this because God has told me to do this. Trust me. That's the only reason why I'm teaching. The only reason why I'm preaching. I have zero desire for likes, shares. I don't get any pleasure out of having a lot of followers. The numbers don't make me feel any certain type of way. I honestly can care less. I'm only doing this because I've given my life to Christ. I've denied myself and my own wants and my own dreams. And I'm following after what Jesus has told me to do. So I, ha I haven't strived to get here. Never, not for one moment. It is literally by the grace of God. My ministry is by the unmerited favor of God. God has given me this ministry by his grace. And this is what Paul is saying. I, I was fueled by the grace of God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, this is what he says. But whatever I am now, it's all because God poured his grace on me. And not without results, for I've worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So here's what Paul was saying. The secret to my ministry is the grace of God. And Paul says, but... 
It wasn't without results. I actually worked hard. I worked hard so the grace wasn't in vain. And he said, I worked hard than, harder than any other apostles. Yet it wasn't me working. It was God working through me. And, and I could say, I'm not comparing myself to the apostle Paul. But what I am saying is I have worked hard and I've worked harder than probably most people I know to be in the position I'm in. When I mean work hard, I'm talking about studying prayer. I'm talking about hundreds of hours of learning how to uh, go on the algorithm and get the videos to people and make videos and record and set up lights and set up cameras. I've spent hundreds of hours working. Why? Because God said, Isaiah, you're going to reach people through social media. Now you need to put in the work. I'll give you grace to do it, but you got to put in the work. And so I put in the work, but it wasn't me doing the work. It was the grace of God, the power of God through me, motivating me to do it. The reason why I can sit here on the phone with pastors and preach like this for five hours about the YouTube algorithm I mean, how boring is that? But I can do it because it's the power and the grace of God through me teaching me to be able to utilize these things for the kingdom of God. It's all God, y'all. It's all God. I don't, I get so passionate. I literally, pastors call me, say, can you explain to me the algorithm? And I have to apologize before and say, hey, I just want you to know I get very excited talking about reaching people on social media. So just excuse my excitement. And I'm that excited about it because God's working through me to do this, to help other people reach people with the gospel. But again, it was God's grace poured out on me, but it wasn't without results. It takes hard work. And then God says, I can utilize you and do this stuff. Romans 15, 17 through 19. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. Okay, so listen to what Paul says here. Now you're going to think Paul's arrogant, but I want you to see what Paul says here. I have reason to glory in Christ and the things that pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak on any of the things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient and mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and round about to Lyricum, I fully preach the gospel of Christ. So Paul is careful to say everything I've accomplished was because Christ working through me. So the only boasting I'm doing is boasting about what Christ has done through me. When we say, let me just give you an example. Last month, okay, we, we had 19 million views collectively on our channel, 19 million views on our channel last month. That's about 5 million people every week we reach with the gospel. Now I say that and you say, Isaiah, you're bragging, you're boasting. I am boasting what Christ has accomplished through me. Now, if my channel, my YouTube channel was about vlogging or about me riding bikes or motorcycles or being out, whatever, it was not about God. And I said, we reached 20 million people last month. That would be arrogant. And that would be boasting. What Paul is saying is as I'm boasting about reaching 19 million people last month, I'm boasting in what Christ has done through me. That's the boasting. And, and, and understand it's Christ working through me. It's not me doing it. It's Christ working through me. That's what Paul says I boast about. And then Paul says, understand that the gospel preaching the message by the mighty power signs and wonders is the full presentation of the gospel. So he says, with signs and wonders, I fully presented it. Anyone who says signs and wonders don't matter or isn't required in presenting the gospel is completely wrong. Paul says this, signs and wonders gave him full confidence that he fully preached the gospel and without them, the gospel's not full. Here's what the NLT says. They were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's spirit. In this way, in what way? By the miraculous signs and wonders. In this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to Lyricum. In today's era of Christianity, we've lost the convincing factor. The thing that was convincing people in Paul's day was the signs and wonders. And today we use programs, gimmicks, and nice buildings. But Paul used signs and wonders. He didn't need a play, a performance, a gimmick. It was the raw power of God that convinced them. The Bible says they were convinced by the miraculous signs and wonders. So the world doesn't need a new definition of Christianity. They need a new demonstration of Christianity. If Jesus healed the sick and cast out demons literally everywhere he went, why don't you think as a follower of his, you shouldn't be doing that? I don't understand this. Why is it okay for so many pastors to not perform signs and wonders? Why is it okay for pastors to preach against miracles today? It's time to let the Holy Spirit empower our lives and begin to perform signs and wonders so that we can fully present the gospel. There's no getting around it without signs and wonders we have not fully presented the gospel and the signs and wonders are the convincing element. I just find it so hard to convince people God's alive and well. I don't. I literally don't find it hard. When they see deliverance, when they see miracles, when they get healed, when God moves in their life, they're convinced that God is real. But if you don't have miracles, there's no convincing factor. 
So that's the scary part about powerless Christianity that is propagated in America is you lose the convincing factor and people aren't convinced. And guess what? Your cute little play once a year is not going to convince the world God's alive. Your gimmicky building or gimmick that you have to bring people in is not going to convince people that God is real. I believe there's coming a day where we don't have to do giveaways to get people in the church, but we can give away the power of God. The miracles will draw them. Come on, help me tonight, Holy Spirit. The deliverances will draw them in the building. The power of God. The devil wants a powerless church. Come on, chat. The devil's the one that wants us to preach. It's not about signs and wonders, brother. If it's not about signs and wonders, why did Jesus do them everywhere? And why did Paul say, this is what convinced the people, and this is how I know I preach the full gospel. Oh man, you guys got me going tonight. The signs and wonders are required, hence the title of the video. They are required. Don't let anybody lie to you. They are required. Romans 15, 20 through 22. And so I've made it. Oh, I love this. Paul says, so I've made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another, another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I've also been, I've also been much hindered from coming to you. So Paul's goal was to reach people that hadn't been reached yet. And this should be our goal. Reach the world with the gospel. Reach the unreached world. One of the reasons why, as you already know, I'm so passionate about social media is because you can reach unchurched people. Guys, we get hundreds of messages a week of people saying, I would never go to church and I got saved on your broadcast. I would never go to church, but I got healed on your broadcast. I'm now serving God. I would never go to church. The world is not. If you don't know this, let me just give you a, a, a public service announcement. The world is not flocking to our churches, okay? We're not sitting there going like, our buildings aren't big enough. The world is surrounding our buildings, trying to get in. We have to beg people to come to church. The world is not flocking our buildings. That's just the bottom line. So rather than trying to just, oh, let's just, let's reach people that are unreached. Some of you, every one of you can go online right now and reach unreached people on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, whatever. You have unlimited potential. We reached 19 million people last month. How? With social media. Do you think the 19 million people we reached all went to church? Absolutely not. A ton of you in the chat don't go to church. Now you should go to church. I want you in church. But the reality is a lot of people we reach online will never go to church. And so we need to bring the church to them. Amen. Romans 15, 23 through 27. But now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire to these many years to come to you. Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to, and to be helped on my way there by you. At, at first, I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles had been partakers of spiritual things, their duty is also to minister in material things. Okay, so now it's time for Paul to move on. The Spirit of God is urging Paul to complete a number of other like tasks, okay? Other missions Paul has to do. One of those missions is to take an offering to assist the poor in Jerusalem among the saints who were in Jerusalem and to travel to Rome where he would face the conclusion of a service to the church. For years, Paul wanted to go to Rome. Actually, three different times, Paul says, I long to go to Rome. I want to go to Rome. And so his desire is to go to Rome. But before he does, he has to do what God is telling him to do. And that's to bring an offering to those in Jerusalem. The financial gift Paul refers to was a collection made during his third missionary journey. Paul mentions the churches are pleased to address the need. But he also points out that the Gentiles owe it to the Jews to share the material blessings. Okay, because the Jews shared spiritual ones. So what Paul is saying, let me make it simple for you. The Jews shared spiritual blessings and inheritance with the Gentiles. So now the Gentiles should share material blessings. That's example finances. They should be sharing finances with those Jews as basically repayment. You helped us spiritually. We're going to help you in material. And he, Paul will say that later. He'll say, listen, if there's men teaching you, training you in spiritual things, should they not reap material things? So when we say, hey, if you want to give to the broadcast, it's absolutely biblical because tonight I'm giving you and sowing in spiritual things and then I reap physical things, i.e. you guys are able to donate and support the ministry. That's what Paul is saying there. Romans 15, 28 through 29. Therefore, when I perform this and have sold to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. So he says, I got to go to Jerusalem first. 
There's no way of getting around it. As soon as I'm done, I will board the first ship to Rome. That's what Paul's saying. And again, three different times he mentions his desire to see the believers in Rome. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, he had not been to Rome or met these believers yet. Romans 15, 30 through 33. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers for God, to God for me, that I might be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So he asks for the believers in Rome to pray for his safety for those that don't believe, and, the, and when he goes to Jerusalem, it'll be well with him. And this is a sign of humility, asking for prayer, and it's something incredibly valuable. All of you that pray for me, okay, I can't express in words the gratitude that I have that you pray for me and that you say, hey, Isaiah, I pray for your family. I pray for your kids. I will ask, there's 2,300 of you listening right now. Put me on your prayer list. Put my wife on your prayer list. Put my kids on your prayer list. Your prayers are valuable. And Paul is thanking them. Thank you. And not only am I asking for prayer, but Paul is thanking them for praying because there's untold power in all of you that pray. So I would love for you to remember me in your prayers. I would love for you when you're praying to say, let me pray for Isaiah. You know, he has a big target on his back. He has a lot going on in his life. And you praying for me helps me to continue to do. In fact, I wouldn't be standing here today if it wasn't for the prayers of many of you. One commentator wrote this, from a purely human perspective, the events in Jerusalem went from bad to worse. In Acts 21 through 27, Luke offers a full account where Paul was nearly beaten to death by an out of control mob. Then he, then he languished for two years in a Caesarean jail, which may have been worse than the beating. Paul arrived in Rome, not as a pioneer missionary, but as a prisoner of the Roman government. And here's a spoiler alert for you guys. When Paul finally gets to Rome, it's going to be as a prisoner, okay? Which is sad, but that's what it is. Paul died in Rome during the latter years of Nero's reign, about AD 68. According to scripture, Paul never experienced the sense of joy and intimacy with the Roman church that he longed for, but God's servant, Paul the apostle, was nevertheless faithful until the Lord called him home. He closes the chapter with this third benediction, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul wishes that all the believers in Rome would live together in the spirit of peace. That's Romans 15. Okay. We're going to go quick here. Romans 16, and then we're going to start communion. Do not get off this broadcast. We got to do communion. Very important. Romans 16 is interesting. This is the last chapter of Romans. Three months we've been doing this, and this is where it concludes. This is basically... This chapter, it won't be long because it's Paul giving greetings to 20 plus people that helped him in ministry or people he loved, and he's sending his greetings through this letter. So it's a lot of thanking people, which is why it won't be long. Romans 16, one through two. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in um, Centria, that they may receive from the Lord in a matter worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of. For indeed, she's been a helper of many and myself also. So the first... Just, I just want to note this because I won't go through every person. It'll take me hours. But the first person that Paul wants to acknowledge is a woman by the name of Phoebe, a Gentile Christian. I know I'm going to pronounce all these wrong. Oh, well, you'll be, you'll be okay. You'll survive. She lived in Centria, a port town southwest of Corinth. And since Paul wrote this letter from Corinth, most believe that Phoebe was Paul's emissary to deliver this letter. But notice he said this about a girl. And one commentator said, this is sufficient information to support the idea that Phoebe was accustomed to serving. She was a deaconess in her church in Centria. Paul refers to her as a sister and a servant and asks the Romans believer to receive her in, a, in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. So she was a woman of high standing, helping others and also helping Paul. Paul asked the church, the entire body to receive her in the Lord. And just as we, and he says, just as we show honor and um, deference to the Lord. So he was asking the brethren to exercise graciousness to this valuable servant. Okay. This idea that Paul was against women is not in the Bible. This idea that Paul's like, I don't want women to do this. I don't want women to do that is not in the Bible. Paul gave a high level of respect to women. And there were many women. I know some of you guys are going to hate this, that think women have no place in ministry. You need to get saved. Paul had a high level of respect for women in ministry, and there were many women, come on, help me chat, that helped Paul and even helped Jesus in his ministry. So I know there's a lot of guys, women shouldn't do this, women shouldn't do that. So they take the verse out of context that says women should remain silent in the church. That was not about women teaching and preaching. It was about women asking questions in those synagogues where the women and the men sat in different sides of the room. They would yell to their husband during the service. And Paul says you shouldn't be yelling during service. Remain quiet. When you get home, you can ask your husband 
sermon or you can, you know, the question, what, what you had. You don't need to ask him while the guy's preaching across the room. Well, we take these verses and say, oh, well, women shouldn't be talking and women shouldn't be teachers and women shouldn't be preachers and women shouldn't be leaders in the church. But that's not what Paul was saying. Paul gave high respect. Romans 16, 3 through 5. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So having introduced Phoebe, Paul turns his attentions to greeting of old friends. We know them because we went through the book of Acts. He sends special greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, a couple who are fellow workers in his ministry of the gospel. And his friendship with them we know was long time, much appreciated friendship. We saw that in the book of Acts, Paul's love for them. They first met in Corinth where Paul teamed up with them. They were also fellow tent makers. They'd been driven out out of Rome by Claudius in AD 49 when he expelled the Jews. And Priscilla and Aquila ran a house church that Paul wanted to greet as well. Romans 16, 5 through 7. Greet my beloved. I'm going to say all these names wrong, guys. Greet my beloved um, Aponidas, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored for us. Greet Andronicus and Wania from countrymen and fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who are also in Christ before me. So Paul says a great, a special greeting to a lady named Mary. There are six people in the New Testament named Mary. And this girl, an, apart from this text, we don't know much about this Mary. We don't know who she is. The only place in all of the Bible she's found is right here. And Paul has a special greeting for her. Interesting to note, four of the first seven names in Paul's list belong to women. Okay, just so you know. Four of the first seven names that Paul's going to list in Romans 16 belong to women. And of the 29 names, he's going to name 29 people in total, one third are women that Paul's going to thank for their help in ministry. And this is evidence that Paul was appreciative of women in ministry. Again, I know people say women can't preach, women can't do this, but one third of all the people Paul's going to thank out of the 29 names, the first four of seven or, or four, four of the first seven names are women that help Paul in the ministry. So there's no getting around this. Paul shows respect for women that he had served in the ministry with, and there is a special place for women in ministry. I know it's very unpopular. Sadly, people think women can't do ministry, and it's just a weird thing to think. Paul asked the believers in Rome to greet them, fellow prisoners. Um, Romans 16, 8 through 16. Okay, lots of names here, but for the integrity of the text, I'm going to read them. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus our fellow worker in Christ, and Stasis, my beloved, greet Apelles, approved in Christ, greet those who are of the household of um, Aristobulus, greet Herodian, my countryman, greet those who are the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord, greet Typhina and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord, greet beloved Persis, who labored in the Lord, greet Rufus, chosen of the Lord, and his mother and mine, greet um, Asyncritus, Philegan, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the other brethren who are with them. Greet uh, Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister, Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. So this is Paul's greeting. I won't go into all of these people that Paul is greeting, but these are the people that carried the flag in their generation. These are the people that were teachers, that were friends, that were co-laborers. These are those that Paul is giving a special thanks to that ran the race and that built the early church. So their names, although we read their names quick, these are very, very special people that Paul is greeting. Romans 16, 17 through 20. Now I urge you, brethren, note that those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve the Lord our Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will soon... I'm sorry, let me say this again. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So Paul's final writings is this. Warning against the church of those that cause division and teach things contrary to what he taught. These would be false teachers. Now we know in Galatians, he says, even if an angel comes down from heaven and preaches another gospel, let a curse fall, even if it's an angel from heaven. So Paul puts a high emphasis on mark and avoid those that cause divisions and those that preach another gospel. And then he ends it with, let, I love it. Let the God of peace crush Satan under your feet. So notice what he says here. Satan, I'm sorry, God crushes Satan. Where does God crush Satan? Under our feet. And this is a display of spiritual warfare taking place. We engage in battle, but God does the crushing. God does the heavy lifting. When we're casting out demons, when we're engaging in spiritual warfare, God is the one that is doing the work through us. And God is crushing Satan and Satan is being crushed under our feet. Craig Keener said this, Genesis 3.15 promised that the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve would partake of the fruit would ultimately be crushed 
beneath the feet of Eve's seed. Here, Paul applies it more broadly to the Messiah's followers as well. His point is they should persevere to the end and their opposition will be defeated. So just as Christ has crushed Satan, there's coming a day shortly, Paul says, where Satan will be crushed under our feet. Romans 16, 21 through 24. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Cordus, a brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So Tertius is the one, Tertius is the one who transcribed the letter that Paul is writing. And again, this is Paul thanking leaders and co-laborers. Okay, here's the end. The last two verses in Romans 16, three months later, here we are. Romans 16, 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone, wise be, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So I love the way that Paul ends Romans. He ends it by pointing out that there had long been a mystery and this mystery was God's plan for saving humanity had finally been revealed in Jesus Christ for obedience to the faith. This is a reference to the great commission, the responsibility of all Christians to preach the gospel. This was the great mystery that God had planned long ago when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden before the world was formed, the lamb was slain to send Jesus. And now that mysterious plan had been unveiled. And we now as Christians have the responsibility in the Great Commission to take this gospel message to the world, and that is the end of the book of Romans. Can we get some celebrations in the chat? Can we get some ones in the chat? This is our third book we finished, every verse taught. We've taught 16 chapters in Romans in the last two and a half months. Praise the Lord. Okay, what happened after this letter, and then we're taking communion. Give me two more minutes here. What would happen after the book of Romans? Okay, this is what a historical commentator said. A fire raged throughout the entire city of Rome in AD 64, seven years after Paul's epistle was written. People saw how quickly Paul's letter to the Romans would prove to save very practical value in the years following its composition. When Emperor Nero rebuilt the city in his honor, many blamed him for setting the fire. Needing a scapegoat, Nero blamed Christians and initiated widespread execution of them. Christians were torn to death by dogs and used as torches to light Nero's gardens and parties. Although Nero's reign ended in AD 68, the persecution of Christians continued. The Great Colosseum was built between 75 and 80 AD, built for sportive entertainment. The Colosseum showcased gladiator, glad, gladiator combats, but was also where many Christians were thrown and martyred um, to the beasts. Paul's letter to the Romans would prove very practical in the years following its composition. Likewise, Paul's assurance that all Christians were saved by grace through faith would have comforted, comforted those who were close to death. It is likely this epistle helped many Christians resist the temptation to turn away from Christ in the face of persecution and rather press on towards the goal which God had called for them. So what it's basically saying here is years after Paul wrote this letter. There's a great persecution of the church. Nero was literally using Christians as torches to light his gardens and to light his parties. So Nero was throwing literal parties and the, the flames, the torches at the party were Christians. They were burning. And not only that, he ended up building coliseums and they were throwing Christians in as entertainment. People were not only killing Christians, but the animals were eating Christians. And Paul's letter written you know, years prior would bring hope to those Christians that were being persecuted as Nero was reigning. All right. Praise the Lord. We are done. We are now going to take communion. What a great night to take communion. What a great time to take communion. If it's your first time taking communion, all you need, I have a little bit of juice here. You can use juice. You can use water, grape juice. I have some juice here and I have like a little cracker here. You could just get a little cracker or bread or whatever you have. Just go ahead and grab it as we take communion. Communion, if you don't know, is a symbolic way showing that we belong to Jesus and reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us. We all know that we're all extremely forgetful. It's easy to forget about or not think about what Christ has done for us, what God has done in our life. So I would like to say tonight that not only is this communion reflecting on what God has done for us on the cross, but let's also reflect on what God has done in our lives. The way God has healed us, the way God has delivered us, the way God has saved us, the way God has restored our marriage restored our children whatever God has done in your life let communion also be a way of reminding yourself 
what he's done on the cross, but also let's reflect what he's done for us. This is all about Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. The breaking and eating of the bread has to do with Christ's body being broken on the cross. And then obviously as we drink, it is Christ's blood, the shedding of Christ's blood for the forgiveness of sin. Communion was originally celebrated by God's people as a promise of protection during the Passover that's found in Exodus chapter 12. Jesus would then come, redefine the celebration of the Passover, and him and his disciples would gather and eat and remember the purpose of the Passover, and Jesus would make a new promise. This is in Luke 22, 19 says, he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So this was Jesus saying, the bread represents my body being broken on the cross and the the wine represents the shedding of my blood for the remission of your sin. Now, before we take this, it's important that we examine ourselves. And this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For if anyone who eats of the cup and drinks of the blood without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have died. So what we want to do, or what I like to do, and I believe Paul is saying, is we need to examine ourselves, examine that our hearts are right, that we're doing this for the right reasons, and that I would like to repent and ask for forgiveness of any sin in our lives. That's what I like to do before communion. Now, let me make this clear. In the context of what Paul was saying, taking communion in an unworthy manner, what he was saying in that church, they were overeating. They were using the bread and eating and gorging themselves on the wine and the bread. And there was starving people outside the church. And Paul said, you're taking communion and you're using it to start to gorge yourself on food and wine. And they're starving people. That was what he meant by an unworthy manner. So don't think like, oh, if there's any sin in my life, I shouldn't take communion. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, examine ourselves that our motives are right because they were using the communion to overeat and to get drunk and all this other bad stuff. So that's what Paul was saying in the context of the verse. But it is good still to examine ourselves, look at our heart and make sure we do it for the right reason. So let's pray here. Father, we just come before you, Lord. We thank you for what you did on the cross. We honor you, Jesus. We are reminded tonight of your shed blood that, Lord, we can't say it enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the finished work of the cross. Father, we ask you that you would just remove any sins in our life, that you would cleanse us of any unrighteousness, that, Lord, by the shedding of your blood, that tonight you would wash us in your precious blood, that the precious blood of Jesus would flow over us, Lord, that would cleanse us, that would purify us, and that would make us holy. Father, tonight I pray if there's any sin in my life, known or unknown, that God, you would cleanse me of it. Forgive me, Lord. I repent of any sin in my life, known or unknown. I pray, Lord, that you would search my heart and point out anything in my life that offends you. I ask you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. I ask for your power. I ask for your blood. And I just pray, God, God, wash us tonight in Jesus' mighty name. Again, Lord, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you're doing. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Now that we've prayed, we've examined ourselves. And kids can take communion. If you're asking in the chat, can my kids do it? Yes, they can. I want you to go to take the bread. I'm going to read you this, and then we're going to take our bread. 1 Corinthians 11, 23. For I ha- I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, do this for you, I- which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. So everybody take their bread and go ahead and eat your bread now. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. Now that you've taken your bread, you can get your your drink here, whether you have juice or water. I have some juice here, but if you have water, that will work as well. It's symbolic, so whatever you have will work for those of you asking in the chat. You use whatever you have available. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh, I'm sorry. I read the wrong verse. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. And the same way he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So go ahead, everybody. Drink whatever juice, water, whatever you have. Go ahead and drink it now. Thank you, Jesus. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So right now, we just proclaimed... The Lord's death publicly until he comes. Father, we thank you so much for what you're doing. We honor you, Lord. 
We glorify, come on, let's just worship for a second here. We glorify you, Lord. We exalt your holy name. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done in our lives. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. I thank you, Lord, even now that there's people on this broadcast that are being healed physically. Even as they took communion, there is healing power. There is restoration power. I pray, Lord, that you would heal bodies right now in Jesus' mighty name. I pray, Lord, that you would restore people in Jesus' mighty name. I pray marriages would be restored. I pray relationships would be restored. I pray families would be restored. I pray, Lord, that you would bring deliverance in Jesus' mighty name. I pray every person watching that is in bondage, that needs deliverance, that, Lord, you would do the work, that you would do deliverance on them, that every foul spirit would have to leave now in Jesus' mighty name. Every unclean power would have to leave now in Jesus' mighty name. Every sickness must go now in Jesus' mighty name. We command bodies to come in alignment with the word of God in Jesus' name. I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd begin to move, that you would have your way, that God, we will never forget what you've done, that we'd be reminded continually of what you've done on the cross. Jesus, have your way. Let your anointing just flow. Let your power just flow. Holy Spirit, have your way right now. Holy Spirit, have your way right now. God, remove any unbelief. God, remove any doubt. Remove any anxiety. Remove any fear right now in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, have your way. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.